0: Good morning. It's good to be with you at Covenant Fellowship today. Uh, It's been a few years since I was here. It was actually the night that you uh, installed your pastor, and uh, I was a part of that, and very proudly so. I knew the former pastor, Hillary, and not Hillary, (laughs) her husband Steve and Hillary Walton, of course, and now Nick and Elise for the last few years. And uh, before I start talking, Uh, Ironically, I'll ask the translators to forgive me. I I talk about 200 words a minute, and I know that can be a difficulty for translators. Sometimes I have gusts up to 250, and so uh, I'm told that I'm not easy to translate, so forgive me of that. Um, I should also invite you uh, to an event our congregation is going to have. Some of you have attended in the past, our retreat, our family retreat. Each summer we have in Beatenburg, Switzerland. We're having that again this summer on the week of July the 2nd. So if any of you would like to come, I'll get you the link on how to register for that. And it should go without saying that anything we're doing, there's always an open door for you to come do it with us. We'd love to see you Uh, at whatever event we're having. So if you're not busy this summer in early July, we'd love to have you there. If you don't mind standing for the reading of Scripture found at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, give your attention as I read. Then Peter came up to him and said, "'Lord, how often will my brother sin against me "'and I forgive him, as many as seven times?' Jesus said to him, "'I do not say to you seven times,' And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who speaks unlike the gods of the nations that are so much wood and metal. We pray now that just as you spoke in the beginning, And just as you spoke through your Son in these last days, that once again you would speak to us as you are faithful to do every Lord's Day through the preaching and the reading of God's Word. We pray that just as you, who are our God and our Father, spoke light into darkness, that you would now shine the light of your glory in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What's the matter with you? In 1973, Glenn Fry and uh, Don Henley met and formed the American rock band known as the Eagles. And uh, for seven years, they toured together and played to sold-out concert shows and sold millions of records all over the world. They made fortunes. They had gold and platinum records all over their walls. Uh, but, after seven years, they got to the point where they couldn 't stand the sight of each other, and they decided to break up. Rolling Stone interviewed Don Henley as one of the founding members of the band and said don 't you realize how much money at stake don 't you want to reconcile together as a group of of musicians and produce more music and and travel and tour the world some more you 're still so young? Is it possible that you 'll get back together?" And Don Henley said, sure, it's possible we'll get back together, but it'll be a very cold day and a really hot place when we do. Fourteen years later, I guess enough time went by, and on a cold day, the Eagles got back together again, and they had a concert, and I watched the concert. And on the night of that concert that they recorded, Don Henley dedicated a song that he had written during their hiatus that became a number one hit across the world called Heart of the Matter. The chorus of that song says, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my friends seem to scatter, but I think it's about forgiveness. What's at the heart of the matter with you? As we look at Matthew 18 today, we get down to the heart of the matter with Jesus And we notice five things about this passage. First of all, Peter's provocation. Secondly, the king's clemency. Thirdly, the servant's severity. Fourthly, the peer's passion. And finally, the master's mercilessness. Notice Peter's provocation in verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's an interesting question, and it sets up the whole parable Jesus is about to tell. And there's a key word in this question that you need to lock onto and underline in your Bible. It occurs two times in verses 21 and again in verse 35. It's the key word. It provides a context, and that word is the word brother. The word brother forms a frame around this passage to help hold it together. How often will I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, no, Peter. Why seven times? Maybe Peter was thinking about Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16, which says a righteous man will fall seven times and yet will rise again. Maybe that's what he was thinking about. I don't know what was in his mind, but it seems that Peter, in his heart, wanted a rule. And you know, the funny thing about religious rules is sometimes what we want is we want borders around things. We want to have a limitation on our behavior. Jesus, why don't you give me a rule so I know how much of this I have to do? Because take it from someone who's been in the ministry for a little while, there's nothing harder to do than say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. How often am I going to have to do that, Jesus? Seven times? Jesus would have us know that law keeps count, but grace does not. Seven times. Why seven? Did you know that at the time, the rabbis in Jerusalem were teaching the faithful that it was wrong to forgive their brothers and sisters more than three times? They got that from an obscure passage in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 1, which is a kind of a strange book, but in the beginning of Amos, Amos speaking for God is denouncing sinful nations all around Israel, and there's a strange formula that doesn't sound right in English. I'm sure it sounds awful in German as well. It doesn't directly translate, but it sounds like this. For three transgressions or for four, I will not forgive the sins of Damascus, etc., etc. And so the rabbis of Jesus' day had picked up on that teaching and said, See, God doesn't forgive the sinful more than three times for the same sin. If he wouldn't forgive more than three times, it's presumptuous for you to do it. So maybe Peter knew that teaching and thought, I'll double it and add one to it, and the number of perfection seven anyway. And so maybe Jesus will give me a gold star for the day and pat me on the head and say, Way to go, Peter. That's not true, though. Peter didn't get praise. He'd forgotten what will be written later by Paul in 1 Corinthians thirteen five: love keeps no record of wrongs. But this is the problem. A heart needs more than just a religious rule to rule it, to change it, to soften it. You know, Peter had been traveling around with Jesus and Jesus' band of 12 now for a couple of years. They'd been playing to sold-out concerts and had seen miracles all over the place. They had gold and platinum records of achievement for all the ministry that Jesus had done. But maybe what Peter was saying to Jesus is, you know, we've been traveling around now for a little while, and I am sick to death of these other disciples. They just keep stepping on my toes. How long am I going to have to keep this up? And you know, one of those disciples of Jesus was Peter's actual blood brother, Andrew. So when he used the word brother, maybe he's thinking of Andrew and saying, I've added up to here with Andrew, and that Thomas is driving me crazy. And those sons of thunder, I'm all full up of them. I can't stand the sight of them anymore. How much longer, how many more times am I going to have to forgive these jokers? Jesus says not seven, how do you deal with the pain of personal proximity? Several years ago, I was taking a group of teenagers from my church to summer camp for a week, and uh, we loaded a van with these teenagers and a big bag of snack food in the front of this van and as we drove two hours to where the camp was uh, we were like the van flowing with milk and honey there was so much chocolate and cola flowing around there it had them in just the greatest mood they were laughing and they were talking so loud and telling jokes and I could barely hear myself think and I dropped them off at summer camp And five days later, I went and picked them up, and they got in the same van with me and didn't say a word all the way back home for two hours. And I thought, boy, they really must have played hard this week. They must have camped hard because they're so tired. What I found out on Sunday night of that week, though, was they weren't tired. They were ticked. It's one thing to see a youth group once a week at church or maybe on Wednesday night for an initial hour for a youth group meeting. It's a whole other thing to live in a cabin with a joker for a whole week. They had had all they could stand of each other. How do you deal with the pain of close personal proximity? Jesus says 70 times 7. That's Peter's provocation. Secondly, notice the king's clemency in 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's the magnitude of this debt, 10,000 talents. The first time I encountered liberalism in the church, it was through this parable. I was on a mission trip in the country of Gibraltar, which is an English, you know, island in the Mediterranean, right in southern Spain. And they took us, they said, that Sunday they took us to different churches. And on that particular Sunday they said, we're going to take you to the high church. Now, I knew Baptist and Methodist and, you know, Presbyterian and Pentecostal. I'd never heard of high church, so we went to the high church and the priest had this had this passage read, and here was his first sentence out of his mouth, very proper English gentleman came up and said, well, we can't take Jesus very seriously here. After all, he was known for telling tall tales. Well, listen, hey, I grew up in the southern United States, and when you say something disrespectful about Jesus, you shouldn't do it in church. So I grandma whispered to the row of people next to me, You know, when your grandma whispers and the neighbors next door, they can hear what she said. So I whispered out loud, did he just call Jesus a liar? I made sure the people in front of me could hear me too. Uh, Maybe we can do a little better than insinuating that Jesus was just exaggerating here. 10,000 talents. Um, Let me give you a little study on the money, monetary denominations of the day. A denarius was a day's wage for a day laborer or a soldier in the Roman Empire, a denarius. But it took 6,000 denarii, 6,000 of those daily wages to equal one talent. 6,000 days wages for one talent. But 10,000 talents is a whole other thing. 6,000 days' wages for one talent is 17 years' wages for a soldier. But 10,000 talents is 17 years' wages for 10,000 soldiers. What's in view here is not just shocking, it's supremely shocking. Because what Jesus is describing here is not a servant who went and borrowed a sum of money from his master. He's describing a whole other kind of servant. I think that what he's describing here is a tax collector, a person who's known commonly in their day and time as a tax farmer. In their world, the way taxes worked was independent businessmen would bid on a territory, and if they were granted a territory by the Roman Empire, it was their job to collect taxes and then take those taxes once a year or whenever the king called on them and present them to the king and what's in view here is a kind of a tax collector that's called in to settle his accounts with the king and when he's called in he does not have the taxes that he's levied over an entire part of the country presumably for up to a year so this is 10,000 talents it's enough taxes for a large group of people, and he doesn't have the money, which means that he's not just not done his job, it means he's embezzled the money. He took money that belonged to the government, that belonged to the king, and he kept it for himself and spent it. 10,000. In in Greek, the largest number that the Greeks liked to count to was 10,000. So if There was a number they were trying to talk about that was too large to count, that wasn't a literal number. They had a word that they would substitute. It's the word behind 10,000 in this passage. It's a Greek word that sounds almost identical to an English word. It's the Greek word myrion, which is where we get the English word myriad. So when we want to talk about a lot of something something too large to count, like the stars in the sky, we'll say there's a myriad. If we see ants on the ground and we just know there's a lot of them, or if you're from the south like Nick and I are, you say a bunch of, there's a bunch of ants down there, don't let them get on your feet. Too many to count. You get a sense of this in Revelation chapter 5, when John looks up into heaven and he sees the throne of God and he sees angels all around and he wants to give you some idea of how many are there and he says in English translations, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. 10,000 times 2,000 literally translated, I saw a myriad times a myriad and then just a whole bunch more. If you take it literally, 10,000 times 10,000, of course, is 100 million. I saw 100 million and then just some millions more. It was too large to count, too many to see, like the sand of the seashore or the stars in the sky. How much did this man owe? He owed an unbelievable amount of money. He owed more money than any accountant at Price Waterhouse could account for. He owed so much money... You wouldn't believe it if I told you. He didn't just take the money. He didn't just spend the money. But when he was called into account, he had no money to pay back. He was bankrupt. And you get a little sense of what that means here because the master orders that the man and his family, his wife and children, to be sold to help pay back the debt. I checked on this to find out, well, what would it cost to buy a family? How much is their redemption worth? And it was at most one to two talents compared to 10,000. It's barely a drop in the bucket. But this is ancient bankruptcy. To be put in prison, to be forever repaying a debt you could never, ever pay. Jesus is getting at a sense of the debt we owe God. This is the measure of sin that we have to have atoned for us. We owe a debt that couldn't even be counted up. That's how great the debt is that you owe. So in their time and in their place, they didn't have laws to protect people against bankruptcy. They didn't just foreclose on your house and on your stuff. They foreclosed on your whole Life. There's one more peel that I need to peel back of this onion and that's that Jesus is describing a king. He's describing the kingdom of heaven and he uses a king to describe God the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And what kind of king is this? Is this a Jewish king? Is this an Israeli king? No, it's not. They didn't have this sort of practice in Israel to foreclose on people and put them in prison till they should pay. He's describing the kingdom of God by using a Gentile king. The kingdom of heaven is like this Gentile king. And what's this king like? Well, when the man is told that he's going to be sold to repay this debt that his wife and children are going to be foreclosed on. He throws himself down in front of the king and begs and pleads and says, have pity on me and I will repay all. Have patience. And the king has pity, takes compassion, has mercy in his eyes and in his heart, and he doesn't just say, okay, I'll give you a little more time to repay me. What does he do? He forgave the debt. It takes a king to absorb that level of debt, a debt that no one could count. And that's what he did. He had compassion for someone who was worthless. Is that a description of your king? I think the only way to get at what is going on here is to equate it to, to some degree, what in the U.S. we call presidential pardons. At the end of every president in the United States term. They often forgive someone. They grant clemency to a criminal or to criminals. I remember at the end of Bill Clinton's term of office, after eight years, he gave several of these presidential pardons, and I was watching CNN as they discussed one in particular, and this man's name that he pardoned was, ironically, Mark Rich. Mark Rich was a hedge fund advisor and investor, and he uh, failed to pay taxes for a long time. And in the 1980s, it was estimated that Mark Rich owed the treasury of the United States $48 million. So instead of paying the debt that he owed, he fled to Switzerland and decided to just live there in exile. By the time President Clinton was done serving his term of office in the year 2000, it was estimated with interest and penalties that Mark Rich owed the United States government $100 million, a myriad of dollars. What did the president do? He granted him clemency and forgave the debt. And so the day I was watching this on CNN, they had some attorneys there discussing how is it that people get presidential pardons? And they came up with three ways. One is you have to have received an unjust judgment. Or two, you have to have a lot of money. Or three, you have to have a personal relationship with the president. The servant that's in view here was not unjustly charged. He didn't have... A lot of money, he had no money, but what he did have was a relationship with a compassionate king. Do you? Peter's provocation, the king's clemency, thirdly, the servant's severity in 28 to 30. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Maybe the word in this passage that the whole thing hinges on is this little word but at the beginning of that verse because it's there to provide you with a shocking contrast between the clemency, the compassion of the king, and the severity of the servant that received that compassion. Notice how different he is. And notice the size of the debt that's owed him. He gets up, dries off his face, and as soon as he stands up, he goes out and he hunts down in the street somebody who owes him 100 denarii. Remember, a denarius is a day's wage. Someone who owed him 100 days wages. I don't know how much debt you're carrying right now, but 100 days wages is a manageable debt. That can be repaid. He went out And he exacted a kind of vengeance on him, a sort of severe severe collector. Um, Not just call him on the phone, not like the king before him who called the servant, the first servant, into account. He went out in the street and seized him around the neck and choked him. I don't know about you, but I've never had a collection agent do that to me. But this man did. And notice the plea it's almost word for word the same thing the second servant says to the first servant the same words that the first servant said to the king have patience with me and I'll pay you but he would not he would not have patience with him so he had him put in jail until he should pay all that he owes he's a vigilante. And in so doing this, he placed himself and his righteousness above the king's. He placed his standard above the king's standard, which was mercy and pity and compassion and forgiveness. He said, no, I'm better than that. I have a higher standard than the king. You know, one of the other shocking things about this is after he forgave him the debt, the king didn't say to the first servant, you're fired. He he forgave him and then let him continue Continue in his work and in his profession. I don't know about you, but if, if you stole $100 million from someone, I, I doubt very seriously you'd be qualified to handle money anywhere, again, for the rest of your life, maybe even your children's life. No one would want to trust you with their money. That's how deep the forgiveness is here. What is it about human nature that makes us abuse our freedom by enslaving others? Some of you might know the film Amistad, a film by Steven Spielberg from many years ago. It's based on a true story about a West African slave named Sinke. Sinke was captured in West Africa and put on a slave ship to be sent to America in the 1830s along with hundreds of other West African slaves and somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, those slaves broke free from their bonds and there was a mutiny and in the In the course of the mutiny, the captain of the ship was killed, and when they arrived in America and it was discovered that these slaves had killed the captain of the boat, they were locked up in prison and put in chains, and they had to be tried for murder and mutiny. And they went to the first trial, and they were acquitted of the crime, and then they went to the next higher court, and they were tried again and acquitted of the crime until finally, in the end, they were taken all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in America And their defense attorney was no other than John Quincy Adams, who was the former president of the United States. And they were, for the third time, acquitted, found not guilty, and asked, what is it you want to do? And they said, we want to return to our home. And so the end of the film, you see this group of slaves returning home. And on the bow of the ship is Cinque, with the gentle breeze blowing in his face. And words appear on the screen that say, Cinque and his friends return to their village in West Africa. Their houses had been burned, their farms had been destroyed, and they never saw their families again. It's a sad end to the movie, but it's not the end of the story of Sinke. The real life Sinke went home, and when he found that his farm was gone and his family were gone, he had to find a new way to make money. So guess what Sinke did? He went into the slave trade. What is it about our freedom, our human nature, that makes us take our freedoms and abuse others by enslaving them. Do you use your freedom in Christ to make slaves or freedmen? Peter's provocation, the king's clemency, the servants of very quickly, the peer's passion in verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. These fellow servants were greatly distressed, Do the things that grieve the heart of God grieve yours? When I was growing up, uh, there was a real-life boogeyman that I was afraid of as a little boy, and that boogeyman had a name. His name was Ted Bundy, one of the world's most infamous serial killers, and I just happened to live near the city where he killed many people at the university. And I can remember when they arrested him and they put him in prison, uh, he escaped one time, and it scared me so badly. I couldn't sleep at night because I thought Ted Bundy might be coming for me next. Ten years later, Ted Bundy was on death row at a state prison in Florida, and it came the time uh, when they were going to execute Ted Bundy for killing 30-some-odd people that they knew about. And the night of his execution, some college some university friends of mine, some Christians, gathered together and very soberly watched live news coverage from right outside the prison and at the appointed hour the, the warden came out and he announced that Ted Bundy had been executed successfully and that he was now dead. The boogeyman that terrorized so many people was gone. There were two groups of protesters in front of the prison. There was a group of people that were against the death penalty that were there with their placards protesting and across the street from them was another group of protesters many of them Christians with crosses and other Christian signs and you know, not so nice things on their placards about what should happen to Ted Bundy. And when the warden came out and announced that Ted Bundy had been executed and was dead, the Christians let out a a shriek and a scream and celebrated and clapped and danced in the streets. And my best friend David leaned over to me and he said, you see that? That's not right. That's not what God wants. Don't get me wrong, I think what Ted Bundy ultimately got was justice, but What that thing was they were celebrating in front of the prison was not a living example of do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Do the things that grieve the heart of God grieve yours? Peter's provocation, the king's clemency, the servant's severity, the peer's passion, and finally the master's mercilessness, notice 32 and following, Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You wicked servant. This is the exact opposite. This is a malediction as opposed to the benediction that all of us who are believers hope to hear when we enter heaven and finality and glory what we hope to hear God say to us is welcome good and faithful servant not you wicked servant and why did he call him wicked and deliver him to the jailers was it because he did his job and went out and collected taxes and debts of people that owed him no it's not because of what he did but how he did it he was condemned as wicked because of his wicked heart and that wicked heart overflowed into wicked behavior that's what got him condemned and got his original mercy rescinded and it says in this translation in the ESV he was delivered to the jailers another translation says he was delivered to the torturers does that mean that the salvation that God grants us can be Taken back? Is this about a parable about losing your salvation? I don't think so. What is this jail and torturers? I think it's about divine fatherly discipline. He disciplines those he loves, and those who are merciful will receive mercy, but the opposite's also true. Those who are unmerciful will receive something that does not resemble mercy. It looks more like wrath and discipline. One person has said that these torturers, these jailers in the Christian's life are things like debt, things like being blocked with your job, not being able to get promotions and get ahead in life. It it might even be trouble in relationships, that God disciplines those he loves. I want to give you a principle. It's the principle of horizontal justification. You guys probably know because Nick's a good teacher that there's this concept we believe in called justification where we stand guilty in front of God, the judge, the evidence is brought in and we are guilty, guilty, guilty. But before the hammer of justice comes down, he looks on Christ and pardons me and he says all the good that Christ did I'll impute to you and all the bad you did gets imputed to Christ and he pays the penalty the wrath due you. That's justification, and he bangs the hammer down on our life and says, not guilty, innocent, just as if you'd never sinned or just as if you had the works of Christ. But there's this other thing that I call horizontal justification that's vertical it comes down from God but there's this expectation that we practice as God practiced and those who have received the justification the forgiveness of God the mercy of God there's an expectation that comes with receiving that that we go out and practice that amongst ourselves as a community of faith as the church That means, to put it in American terms, there's no double jeopardy in the court of God. If God calls you innocent, who am I to call you guilty? There's no better character in all of English literature that illustrates this than the character, the unmerciful character Shylock from The Merchant of Venice, a play by William Shakespeare that I had to read when I was in the ninth grade. And Shylock and Antonio were two men who were both merchants, a Jew and a Christian, living in Venice. And they were more than just competitors. They really wanted to constantly compete until one of them was exhausted and his business was ruined. And Shylock was known to be wealthy, a kind of a loan shark. He would loan people money and charge them large amounts of interest. And as it Came to pass in the story, Antonio was asked by a friend to loan him some money so that he could get married and throw a big wedding party. And Antonio went to Shylock to borrow the money on his friend's behalf. And as they were negotiating the terms of the loan, he said, I need this sum of money for so many days. And Shylock said, That's fine, and I'll pay you back with so much interest. He said, No, no, no. Uh, That's not what I want. If it comes on the day that the loan is due, you don't have all the money. Do me. I won't want any money anymore. What I will want is one pound of your flesh. Hence the expression, getting their pound of flesh. And so as you might know, uh, Antonio experienced a downturn in the markets. His ships were lost at sea. He didn't have the money. And on the day he owed Shylock, Shylock didn't want the money anymore. He took him to court and sued him for his pound of flesh. And just before the judge is about to render his final verdict and award Shylock his pound of flesh, ultimately killing Antonio, a young lawyer comes in to defend Antonio before Shylock, and this young lawyer sums up the entire case and Antonio's defense by giving one of the greatest speeches in English literature called The Quality of Mercy is Not Strained, and a few lines from that speech go like this, therefore Jew, consider this, in your plea for justice, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation we don't plead for justice we plead for mercy and that same plea does also teach us to render the deeds of mercy do you hear that we don't pray to god for justice we pray to god for mercy and that prayer when its answered, teaches us to render the deeds of mercy do you have a little shylock in you though i know i do the final phrase here, so, so, so also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There it is. This is what it's been all about from the heart. This is a scary thing. Unforgiveness is a, not, a, not a hollow concept for us. Remember Jesus in his hour of passion, in his agony on the cross, he called out to his father. And what did, he, what did he call out to his father? What did he pray for? Justice for all those that had nailed him to the cross? No, what he said was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can forgive that. When his disciples asked him to pray and they said to him, show us how to pray Jesus like John and his disciples pray. Teach us to pray. What did he say? In the fifth petition, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you know what you're praying when you say those words? You're asking God to come down with all his divine weights and measures and and measure how you forgive other people and then measure that back to you. I wonder how many people have prayed that prayer over the millennia and didn't know they were asking God for a judgment and not a blessing. You forgive from your heart. When I was growing up, my family didn't have a lot of money. Um, My dad worked very hard, and he was a frugal saver. He taught me early in life, you should live on far less than what you earn, even if what you earn is not very much. And so my dad always saved money. He was constantly saving. And, And the time came when I was in college. I was about two classes from graduating from the university, And I did something really foolish. Uh, I had just gotten married. My wife and I decided, you know what would be a smart thing to do at 22 years old is drop out of college, out of the university, and start a business. And so I went into a bank, and I actually sat with a loan officer and asked if I could borrow some money to start a business. I had no business experience. I didn't even have a business degree. I'd never even studied business. And the guy pretty much laughed me out of the room and said, the only person that would loan you any money is uh, some kind of a loan shark some kind of Shylock-type character. My father was afraid, I think, that I would go and find a venture capitalist that would loan me the money to start this business we wanted to start and that I would end up owing them for the rest of my life. And so he said, son, I don't have very much, but what I have is yours. Why don't you let me loan you the money? That way, in case things don't go well, you're not on the hook to some Shylock. So he gave me the money, and I won't tell you how much it was, To some of you, it wouldn't sound like very much. To others of you, it would sound like a whole lot. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, it represented the bulk of my dad's life savings. It took a year for us to spend all of those life savings and to close our business down. We not only didn't have the money that my dad gave me, we owed a whole bunch to a lot of other people. It was a dark day for us. And so for years, I didn't talk about it to my father. It was just a subject I'd rather avoid drove a wedge between us, I think. About six or seven years later, I was in seminary, and I got a call from my dad one day, and he said, son, I've been preparing my last will and testament, and I've got some papers I need for you to sign. A few minutes after I hung up the phone with him, I thought about what he was saying, and I called him back, and I said, dad, you know, the truth is, I feel a little bit like the prodigal here in this story, and I've already spent my share of the inheritance, so if there's anything left... Just give it to my brother. My dad said, okay, well, whatever. The next day, a knock came on my door, and it was my dad standing there with an envelope in his hand, and he gave me the envelope, and inside were directions, his last will and testament, in which he named me an equal inheritor with my brother. On that day, I learned that I'm the son of a compassionate father. Are you? Do you have a letter like that from your heavenly father? I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to do something. I want you to think about somebody that owes you probably not money, maybe something more valuable like a piece of your reputation or a little bit of your public persona, someone who's offended you. You've been carrying debt on them ever since they did it. I want you to find that person, and I want you to offer them what my father offered me in that letter. I want you to offer them forgiveness and mercy from the heart. For over 20 years now, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak, and my best intentions scatter. But I've found it's about forgiveness. What's the matter? What's at the heart of the matter? with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Remind us once again that your mercies are new for us every morning. Renew them now. Call sinners to yourself and show us that you're the God who loves to forgive your children. Help us to breathe it in. Help us to experience the release of guilt and debt and be reminded that our Father in heaven holds it against us no more, buried under the deepest ocean, the ocean of forgetfulness, scattered as far as the east is from the west. Father, renew for us the joy of your salvation and remind us that we are children of a merciful Father. In Jesus' name, amen.